if we don't know what the most important thing to do in a day is or in a moment, then like we will become more like leaves blowing with every breeze. And so I think there have been times in my life where if I wasn't clear with myself on my own priorities or my goals, then I was behaving more like a leaf and being blown around. And I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. But I think I've grown and tried to be more like a tree where there's some roots, but you can still feel the breeze. I say this thing, tomorrow starts tonight, and I really mean it when I say like, I just prepare as best I can for the next day or the next thing I'm doing so that I give myself the best chance at attacking what my North Star is first. What's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. I want to wish you all a happy new year, and I hope your 2021 is off to a great start. My guest on the podcast this week is Alexi Pappas. Alexi, who currently calls Los Angeles home, is a professional athlete who holds the Greek national record in the 10,000 meters, and she competed for Greece at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. In addition to being an Olympic athlete, she's also an award-winning writer and filmmaker whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Runner's World, The Atlantic, Outside Magazine, and other publications. Her first book, it's called Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas, comes out on January 12th. In this conversation, we talked about her new book, how it came to be, and the process of writing it. We also discussed the power of imagination, taking personal responsibility in our lives, approaching our mental health the same way that we do our physical health, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the podcast into this new year. As we start 2021, Tracksmith continues their tradition of encouraging no days off. It's their annual call for patience, persistence, and participation in running. No Days Off is one of my favorite annual campaigns, and I'll tell you why. No, it does not mean that you have to run every day and literally can't take days off. It's not that at all. No Days Off is a call for a commitment to consistency, whatever that means for you. For me, No Days Off means setting the tone for the year from the get-go and doing something every day with intention. Some days that's going to be an easy run, other days a track session, maybe a long run, a strength workout, prehab and mobility, or even a rest day. Tracksmith is shipping a free No Days Off poster with every order to encourage that commitment to consistency. And it goes on while supplies last, so get your order in today at tracksmith.com. Additionally, they are offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more when you use the code MARIO15 at checkout. That's MARIO15 when you check out at tracksmith.com. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with the amazing Alexi Pappas. Alexi Pappas, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. I am honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Your new book, Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas, comes out next week. How does the lead-up to a book launch compare to the build-up 
to a big race or a film release? Ha! I love that question. I love it because actually, um, you know, it does feel like a bit of a taper here where I'm spending a lot more time on the couch uh, doing press. And I think when it, if it was not a COVID time, it would probably be the complete opposite of preparing for a race where you'd be on your feet going from one press event to the next, hopefully. And in the time of COVID, I happen to be doing that all from home. And so it does feel like a somewhat bodily resting period. Um, but it's it really is the opposite of a race where you're putting in so much work and everything goes into the moment before the release. And then I think, I, I, I know there's going to be quite an effort once it's released, but I do feel like so much you know what? It's kind of similar because I feel like I've put in so much unglamorous work that nobody sees all the way up until the the release, which feels a lot like training for a race. So maybe it's exactly the same. I feel know? like I feel like there are a lot of parallels because <laughs> right? all of the like all of the big work is done. Like the hard work of actually writing the book and putting it together and not that, you know, this is media for the book and you're going to do countless other interviews and under normal times you would be on a book tour of of some sort. But now you're at that point where it's like, you almost have to just let it go and trust it and trust that the work is done and now it'll start to shine and show for itself. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you are right. And that makes me feel a lot better because that means that, so much of the work is done. Um, that's a beautiful way to look at it. I want to learn more about the title of the book, Bravey. And to anyone who follows you, it seems obvious. Like, I mean, it's a word you've been using with regularity for a few years now, but what does it mean to you? Yeah. So Bravey, you know, it did come from a poem that I wrote um, on social media, which was run like a bravey, sleep like a baby, dream like a crazy, replace can't with maybe. And the word bravey stuck. And I think the reason why it stuck was because, you know, personally growing up, I chased such specific labels like strong, fierce, fast, funny, pretty. But all of those labels I felt were outward facing and they described an energy that I had to project into the world or that someone might have to assign to me. And I think this word bravey is different because it's inward facing and it's a choice you make about your relationship with yourself. And I think we all have these dreams that we're chasing, however big or small. And I think by giving ourselves a, something we can choose to be rather than something that the world might have to assign to us, we can empower ourselves to give ourselves a chance. And I think I appreciate that it's a word that I can choose to be. And I hope that the world acknowledges that they can choose to be it too, if they want. And what it means to them can be personal, you know. Has its meaning evolved or expanded over time? I think the meaning has expanded uh, to include more people. Mm -hmm. I think at first, you know, and that that's just, by virtue of my, my audience growing and hopefully my message growing from one that is super focused in the running world specifically to expanding to more people and a broader message, you know, relating to bigger themes like mental health and, and chasing big dreams regardless of if they're in an athletic context or otherwise. And so 
I think it's taken on some of its own meaning by virtue of people feeling like it was accessible to them and that they could choose to replace Kant with maybe and and be their own version of a bravey, whatever that means, you know? When you decided that you were going to write a book, did you know that was going to be the title of it from the get-go? No, I, you know, I think my editing team at Random House is probably to thank for that because I thought of all sorts of other titles that were much more generic and, and I thought were more widely accessible, but they were like, no, it's a, it's bravey. And I was like, I like, I don't know if it's not a real word. Like, I don't, I don't know if it makes it too niche. And I think the point is, okay, let's just write a book that's good enough so that this made up word can have some meaning. And so I took it as a challenge to make the book stand up to this fictitious word and, and imbue it with something real. When did the idea for the book first come about? The book. So we started having conversations um, before the Rio Olympics. I met and teamed up with like my literary team at Inkwell um, and they had found this New York Times piece that was written about me and thought that there might be a story there. But what's interesting is that when we started working on the book proposal together, this was after Rio, I was actually in the middle of this kind of post-Olympic depression that I've only just recently shared and writing a book proposal at the same time, but not being, not having really accepted that I was depressed and not feeling I think brave enough or, or comfortable enough sharing that. And so I left that part out of the proposal entirely and I shared, you know, they knew that my mom had this background and that I had a certain life, but the, that, that part that's in the book, it's a, talks a lot about this post Olympic depression. I shared with them when I wrote that chapter and turned it in. So it was interesting because it meant that the book writing process was a process of discovery, not just one of digging up things that were already there. It was, it was really a process and, uh, it was really, it was really fun and really hard and and took a long time. How did sharing that post-Olympic experience with what you just described shift the conversation with the publishing team? Yeah. So it, once I submitted that chapter, so the book is a book of, of essays and it has an emotional arc. It's not a narrative. Um, it doesn't go in chronological order of my life. It goes in a more emotional evolution. And I think that like solidified, like, oh, this is, this is the book. This book is going to, you know, start at your youngest, earliest, most difficult memories. And it will come full circle as it did in my real life with facing the very things that my mom faced myself. And so it it felt like once we had that chapter, we knew kind of where, what the book was. And it was really, it was really exciting to work with a team that could help me shape uh, that emotional arc and, and identify it and, um, and have it come full circle in a way where the audience could discover the epiphanies with me. Like I wrote at the beginning of the book, we will grow up together here. And what I meant by that was I'm going to try to present this in a way where you mature with me throughout the book. 
Let's dig into that a little bit more. What was the actual process of writing the book like for you? Was it cathartic? Was it scary? Maybe some combination of those two things, depending on the story that you were telling? Yeah. So, okay. I, it's funny that you drew the comparison with the running in the very beginning of our conversation, because I felt like writing this book was a process in zooming in and zooming out and, and, and hyper-focusing as we might, when we go to our training, like, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I feel like when we go to a really hard workout or a long run that you know is going to be tough or a race, you prepare for it and then you allow yourself to really hyper-focus for a period of time because you must. Like when when somebody asks me like, are you having like your, your filmmaking epiphanies during your hard workouts? I'm like, no, I am hyper-focused and trying to survive during that workout and doing whatever it takes to just put one foot in front of the other when it hurts. And I felt that with the book, it was similarly allowing myself those windows of time to go into a place and draw out whatever I could Um, and really hyper-focus. And because it was a book of essays, I was allowed to jump around and go into reservoirs that felt compelling to me in a moment. So when I felt I was in a zone to write about the depression, I kind of was able to go with that. And I was grateful for the essay form because it did allow me as a writer to jump around and not feel like that was unproductive. I'd love to dig into the hyper-focus part of things. Um, That's really interesting to me because you're known as someone, I think that New York Times piece that you referenced a little while ago, like it highlighted this side of you that you're not like super focused on running. You have all these other things that interest you and excite you. And I'm I'm really interested in, in that like dichotomy because you just described how you'd be so focused on on one thing and you could basically like push everything else aside but when we zoom out you have all these interests and they're very diverse yeah well i'm sure you can relate that it is easy to have people look at your life from the outside and this is part of the reason why i wanted to write a book too to see your life on the outside and think this person is doing all these things seemingly at once like as if i'm an octopus with eight arms or something like that and the truth is that i have two arms and i'm only able to use them in the same way that everyone else is and when i'm doing one thing i try to just be really really doing that one thing and to hyper focus on it and i think where where it seems like I'm doing many things, the truth is that I'm just good at shifting and making plans enough so that I can hyper-focus in this and then hyper-focus in that. And the misconception that we're doing all these things at once is too, it's misleading because it's not true. And I would rather people understand the, the real, uh, the real process, which is to be committed to the thing that you're doing when you're doing it and then to make the choice to shift and to see that as a healthy shift where to end practice at a certain time is a healthy thing because we don't mm-hmm. need to run more than a couple hours a day at most. And it is actually healthy and good to have something to shift our focus to, whether it's writing a book or cooking or something else. Um, but the misconception that we're doing it all at once is just simply not true. Have you always been good at hyper-focusing or is that something that you learned for yourself over time? I, mm, let's see. I think it's in my nature to to do it. I think I have some, um, I don't know if it's like a attention, like 
thing where I, if I'm interested in something, I'm really in it. Um, but where it does become challenging is if I'm not clear with myself on what my priorities are and what my goals mm-hmm. are. I think that's where we can get really, if we don't know what the most important thing to do in a day is or in a moment, then like we will become more like leaves blowing with every breeze. And so I think there have been times in my life where if I wasn't clear with myself on my own priorities or my goals, Mm -hmm. then I was behaving more like a leaf and being blown around. And I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. But I think I've grown and tried to be more like a tree where there's some roots, but you can still feel the breeze. And, um, you know, I say this thing tomorrow starts tonight and I really mean it when I say like, I just prepare as best I can for the next day or the next thing I'm doing so that I give myself the best chance at attacking what my North star is first. How often do you do that sort of self check-in? So like on what my goals actually are or? Yeah. When you're, when you're trying to identify what your priorities are for the next day or for the following month or even for say the next four years as an Olympic athlete? Yeah. Okay. That's a, such a fabulous question because so zooming out to the last part, the like four years, the four year view, I've never ever planned anything four years in advance. And I think that is so important because had I planned even, you know, four or five years in advance, I think I would have put a ceiling on what I was capable of. Um, because let, you know, like the, the junior in college, me had never even yet scored a team point. So how could I visualize that I might be able to run an Olympic standard time? Like it, it would have been, if I had to say then what I was going to do in five years, I would have not given myself the chance. So I've never planned more than a year in advance, to be honest, with goals and with hopes, because I assume that I will outgrow what I might expect if I let myself but as far as the short term, I try, I mean, you know, every evening I'm going through with my partner, Jeremy, what the plan is for the next day. We have a Google calendar. It's synced up with my, everything from my weights training to my, you know, our writing time, f- meetings, phone calls, family dinners. It's all we try. We try to keep this one calendar. So that's like on the practical level. Um, and then we also try to have conversations as like a family about what our North stars are and what our priorities are. And then we allow them to shift as doors open. So like before we had a television deal, for example, we couldn't dream that the TV show could be a priority of ours. But once that door opens, then we have family meetings and we recalibrate what is important to us. Where does this fit in on the to-do list? And so it's, it is an ever shifting thing. Um, And so I guess to answer your question, I plan every day. I don't plan more than a year in advance. And I try to allow myself the grace to reshift priorities as new information comes in and opportunities. How did things shift for you earlier this year when COVID hit and our world got flipped upside down? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, um, so earlier this year, like the, the year started out really, really exciting because I I ran a PR in the marathon and we released our movie Olympic Dreams in theaters on Valentine's Day. And then right after that, 
I, I flew to Greece because I thought I was going to do, and I, I was going to do this training camp for a couple of weeks and then run another race to try to hit the Greek record or the Olympic standard. And when I got there, it was like the day before I got there was like the last day that everything was open in Greece, which is really close to Italy where everything had felt really, um, really impacted early on in 2020 mm-hmm. and everything shut down. And from there I was stuck in Greece for the next almost five months unexpectedly and with no races, obviously. And then the Olympics getting pushed and everything shifted for me. Like I was, I was editing a book. So the creative goals plugged forward, but athletically I suddenly, to be honest, I had to switch coaches because my safety was in the hands of this Greek coach who was supposed to be proctoring workouts from my American coach. And it just didn't make sense to try to like get a workout, a hill repeat workout when like we didn't have access to a hill because this road was closed for COVID. Like this, the restrictions in Greece were very, very serious. It was like, you couldn't leave your house without a government issued permission slip and an ID. And, and so I needed to just go with what was possible and what was safe. And so I switched and just leaned in to whatever I could learn from this more European philosophy as an athlete, which was fascinating. It was so cool. And um, then just took life month by month instead of uh, seeing too far off in the future. What did you learn during that experience? Yes. So, okay. The European, I mean, we're getting into like the running nerdy part now, and that's fine with you. Yeah, that is my specialty. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so fun. I mean, it's so interesting. So first of all, in countries, smaller countries, and maybe this is also a more European mindset where there's less of like an NCAA system built in, athletes tend to be with their coaches from like teenagehood through adulthood if if it's a good relationship. So the coach knows the athlete from like a much... Um, longer vantage point is what I found with my teammates where like he had been coaching my teammate Isabel for years and years, you know, and has started to, you know, mentor her, her little sister. And um, also because it's a smaller country and perhaps again, this is a European way of thinking, the coach plays a much broader role. And I think in Greece, that's by necessity. There aren't a million physios around. There aren't like, there aren't like, five cooks in the kitchen for one athlete. There's usually just the coach. And what that means is that the coach is the running coach. He's the strength coach. He's the drills coach. He even is trained to do basic physio and chiropractic, you know, have a chiropractic understanding. Like I remember I showed up to practice one day and I was like, I don't know, something in my hip. And he was like, lay down. And he just did this like very (laughs) formal, you know, chiropractic maneuver exactly and I felt fine and I was like how did you do that and he was like he was like we know how to do everything and I was like that's so funny and he also asked about you know my fueling and we discovered I wasn't having enough carbs in my diet and he asked about my 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 um my cycle to figure out if like I was you know healthy in those in those ways and it just felt like the coach was so much more than a coach there and what was remarkable about that was when something looked off um, he knew how to address it and he addressed it right away. And the athlete became, I had to, I was less of the go between because there was no one for me to go between. And I found that that was so refreshing because it is hard in the running world when you feel like the athlete is the one communicating between a coach and a physio and a weights coach when 
we're great athletes. We're not necessarily great at coaching ourselves or being the the moderator between these parties. Um, so that's the really zoomed out lens of like what felt different to me. It just felt like mm-hmm. I had more one one guiding one guidepost to follow, and I was refreshed to do a little bit less of that thinking. Um, and there was a lot more focus on drills, like so many drills. I felt just like way more of an athlete and it was really fun. And, and it, it harkened back to like days playing soccer and, and just, it felt playful and challenging and athletic. Since we're here, let's go down this road a little further. You're back in LA at this point. What does your situation look like now? Yeah. So when I, in about, I guess it was like late summer, we were trying to figure out if Jeremy, my partner should come out to Greece and we should stay there because I hadn't seen him in almost five months or if I should come home. It was like the, the, the world was open enough that I could travel. And we, we actually, um, move forward with a television project. And we decided that I would come back to LA and train here partly because I hadn't been home in so long and, and partly because creatively it made sense. And so I came back and kept training with my Greek coach remotely and it was good, but we had always planned on having me go back to Greece to work with him in person because that was the best. It was truly the best. And the, the, the challenging part was when the second wave came and I had an apartment that I kept in Greece. Like I have stuff over there. Like I had every intention of going over there and it just felt not smart and not safe and not responsible to do it. And so I still have not gone back and I'm still working with this coach, but it has been, you know, challenging to feel like I can't plug back into the, to the, most optimal system for training. At the same time, I have the, the zoomed out lens to understand like why I can't. And and I'm not, I want the world to go back to a place where everybody is safer. And I totally understand. Um, but I think that having eyes on you in person is always more effective. And I hope that someday I can. Um, so in the meantime, I'm working with him remotely. And then I have like a, a physio and a trainer team here in LA that I work with in person. And that was something that was relatively more recent because I realized I can't just have, I can't be the coach of myself, meaning like identify when some imbalance is going on and I do need some eyes on me in person. And so I've put that into place and my coach is um, aware and like excited that somebody's in person with me. Um, but yeah, I miss that. I miss, I miss being there and I really look forward to a time when I can be back, back there, you know? Yeah. Let's pivot back to your book. Early on, you wrote, I often imagine things into existence until I don't know the difference between what is real and what isn't, what doesn't exist and what could exist if I believed it hard enough. What's your first memory of this? Or when did you first become aware that this was something that you did? I think that I started using my imagination like at a really, really young age because my mom was so inaccessible to me. Like she was so 
sick. And I didn't really understand that she was sick, but I did understand that there were things that I craved and wanted that I couldn't have when she was alive and then when she was not alive. And so I do think that my earliest memories of using my imagination were when she was alive in the first like four, almost five years of my life. And just trying to support myself in the ways that I could through my imagination. And I don't know, I remember like being friends with like my cat growing up and just like really believing that he knew that what I was saying and like really just believing, I I just remember believing and make believe more than maybe was normal. And that at that time, it felt very useful. And I think that word useful is a word that I've carried with me where it's like, who cares if it's not true, if it's useful to you, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think like, I won't reveal more about the specifics in the book, but there were some really challenging early childhood memories that I needed to preserve some understanding of the world that was positive by way of drawing an imaginative comparison in my head and just creating a story in my head that made it feel like the world was rooting for me rather than taking things from me as it might have been perceived. I appreciate that. How has your imagination been useful to you as an athlete? Oh, it's so useful as an athlete because, well, on a practical level, sometimes when you're running, do you ever pretend you're somebody else? Like From time to time. Yes. And it's so effective. Like I remember this book, The Inner Game of Tennis. I think Mary Kane recommended it to me way back and I read it and they were saying how imitation is just the strongest tool you can use and how like when you're trying to learn tennis, as with many sports, the best thing is to imitate someone like rather than have someone... Uh, intellectualize and explain how to swing a racket. You just simply imitate. And I think with running, it's similar where like you, if you could just imitate and pretend you're someone who has the stride that you would like to have or the, the gazelle like qualities or whatever it is, it makes you feel more capable. And so I think there's that, that type of imagination, um, which is very practical. And then there's the imagination where you suspend disbelief long enough to feel like something might be possible that you've never done before, like keeping up with so-and-so that you've never kept up with for just one more minute and like one more minute. And then I guess there's another practical element, which I learned from Dina Castor, which is that when we're on really long runs or on runs that we could simply use a distraction to look at the world and try to imagine where she used to like imagine where hawks were going Like, look at that hawk. Is he going to his nest? Does he have a sister? Does he have a daughter? Where's that hawk going? And I think she did that to trick me so that I would keep (laughs) running with her. And like, it worked because she was just using her imagination and engaging mine. So running is one of those sports where we're allowed to use our imagination as a tool. um, And we should, right? Can you recall a specific example when you've used it to your advantage in either a race situation or another tough moment that you've had to work through? Yes. Well, I 
I can recall many workouts and races where I was running with people who I had never kept up with before. And like in college, it might've been Abby D'Agostino at Dartmouth or Jordan Hase when we were at Oregon or any number of women that I've raced that I never beat before. And sometimes when the feeling got really hard in a workout or race, I would imagine that their breath was mine. So if my breath or my body didn't was going through a rough patch, I might imagine that their calm breath was my breath and just let them carry me for a while. And I think that's something that teammates can do for one another. Like if you know someone next to you wants you there, even if they're holding you to the highest level of integrity, like they're not going to slow down for you, but they fundamentally want you by their side, that generosity of spirit can really translate into you literally feeling like they're carrying you for a while. And that I think is how Jordan and I, for example, led the team to win the national title. Like we used that tool, we talked about it. And I think that when I'm in a race where it's not with a teammate, I still imagine it. And I just imagine it on some other athlete that I'm next to and just decide that that's my breath for a little while while mine calms down. I love that. One of my favorite stories from the book is when you met President Obama in 2015. And my question for you is, what do you recall about that experience and what impact did that short conversation have on you? Oh, man. I just, I remember that he was so, he had such a strong presence and you could feel it like emanating off him, like like as if confidence were a tangible thing that people wear and uh, it is something that felt generous in the way of like, I felt that I was allowed to carry myself a little bit more like that walking out of that room. Um, so it, that was just like inspiring. Um, but I think what was, what was empowering was he felt very present in that conversation and, and it was like, we mattered and like we were there and we had our moment. And I, I hope that I can make people feel that way when I'm with them, or maybe if I'm not with them, I hope that what I write can resonate in a way that's that, that represents that presence where even, you know, we talk about this hyper-focus, like what a skill to be the most in-demand person in the country and to give these people you've never met just a moment to feel special. Like that is such a gift. And, and I, I hope I can do that. You know, do you think that's a skill that we can train? Yeah, I think it's a skill that we can train just like confidence is a muscle we can grow where, you know, I think it takes like the moment before going into these interactions telling uh, like an intention to ourself, like I, I'm going to be here for this, or I want so-and-so to feel like I'm with them, or I want to really listen. And I've tried when I transition from like one activity to the next, or when I'm about to go into a meeting, or I'm about to go into an audition, or I'm about to do an interview or something. I've tried to like take just a little second to state an intention to myself so that I consciously you know, shift into that gear. Um, 
Because otherwise, we're just like big smudges going from one thing to the next. I think it is like to 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 transition and allow ourselves that is like it's sometimes built in, right? Like if you're driving somewhere, that can be the time that you re you shift your focus. But what if you're just Zoom call after Zoom call? I think it takes a certain extra step to to put yourself in the present moment with whatever that task is, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And that really resonates with me, especially during these past nine months, because it feels like the calendar or the schedule can fill up very quickly. And you just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing without really giving it much thought, almost like you're on autopilot. But if you can take just a second before you go into that next meeting and like you said, either state an intention or at least just give a little bit more thought about who it is that you're going to talk to or what it is that you're going to do. I think it can make that experience or that interaction much more meaningful. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think about sometimes when I go to races and I'm doing like an appearance, that's when it's like most challenging for me, but also like where I have the greatest opportunity to engage this because you're often as an elite athlete going from like an appearance in front of thousands of people to like signing autographs with people who have been hoping to meet you for a really long time to trying to focus on your own race. And that's like a delicate balance of like giving and, and taking where you need it. And I try, those are like the most wonderful and, you know, demanding times I think for, for an elite runner is just to try to, honor each of those tasks within one weekend. I'd like to pivot and talk about your relationship with running. How has it evolved over the course of your lifetime? Yes. Okay. I really believe that running is a sport that can and must grow with us. Like it is not a static sport. We are not static and it can like evolve with us and it must otherwise we will become bitter and bitter is the worst and we don't want to be bitter. And so for me, it's grown with me. And, you know, I think, I don't know that most people know this, but when I started at Dartmouth and this is in the book, but I was not, I was the worst runner on the team. And I was just, I had come from a strong soccer background. So I was really only fit enough to run the 800. And so I ran the 800 and that was all I could do. And my goal was always, to keep growing and to matter and to contribute. And that meant doing what I could while I could. And it's grown with me, I think, because I've allowed myself the space to be a little bit of a late bloomer. Like the first time I ran the 10K was after college. And I I think Rio was like my fifth 10K in my life. So I was like a young 10k runner. Um, but that's because I wasn't ready to run 25 laps before that at a, at a world-class level. I just wasn't ready. And so I think we, we can allow ourselves the kindness to embrace like what we can do and running and what, what excites us. Like the steeplechase in college felt like the most palatable way to get me to run more because I wanted to jump and like feel like an athlete with those soccer instincts. And so I did the steeplechase. Maybe I wasn't like bound to be a world-class steeplechaser, but I got pretty good. And I think that was because I enjoyed it and I was doing the right thing for me in that moment. And now like with this transition into the marathon, which is still a mysterious beast to me, to be very honest, I'm curious about it now where I wouldn't have been ready to tackle it, you know, four years ago. And 
now I feel ready and I feel curious and it feels like a sport. The sport has grown with me because it's still, it still excites me when I think about doing an event I've never, I've never conquered in in the way that I want to yet. And, um, running is a cool sport in that it can grow with us if we let it. So there's a part of your book that I think is very relevant to this. You wrote about your quote unquote forced retirement from high school running. And I'm curious, what were some of your biggest takeaways from that experience, not just as an athlete, but as a young girl that's helped you have this perspective that you have now? So I, I felt like at that time in general, the, the rhetoric around like development in running or in athletic in anything athletic was there was no differentiation between like the female, the female and the male trajectory. And there was no real like pause or attention given to puberty um, and allowing girls to become women and female athletes. And I think, you know, there's a biological different trajectory for men and women in terms of how their bodies develop. And that just wasn't really something that was embraced at that time. And so generally, I think what happens to high school athletes is um, their females and males are held to the same standards. And females are often pushed through those formative body years when they could be come be becoming like a strong female athlete uh, and just kind of put into a box where they remain like a prepubescent body essentially. And what happened to me was I kind of, I skipped that because I was asked to just run and, and not play soccer and not do student government. And I wasn't emotionally ready to do that. I didn't love running at that time. And so I, I was kicked off the team along with anyone else who wasn't willing to quit everything for running. And, um, I did observe that men, in other sports were who were multi-sport athletes were embraced. And so that's where that disparate, it felt like there was a difference there. But what happened was I hit puberty and I became like a full on female. I was a strong soccer player and um, I got to go through puberty in a more uh, normal way because I wasn't training so hard and I didn't have the pressure that some high school running programs put on athletes to suppress that, you know? And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't on purpose and it didn't feel good to be kicked off my team. But in retrospect, I see how my bones developed. My bones grew strong. I didn't have a single injury until after my first Olympics, which is like years and years. That's like 15 years of no injuries whatsoever. Um, and I think the injuries I did have were due to my depression and not sleeping. And so I understand why they eventually, why that happened. But in retrospect, I'm really grateful that this forced retirement allowed me to have a really strong, durable body. But what was so important about writing this book was that it shouldn't have been an accident and it shouldn't have felt so crappy to go through a normal, healthy period. It should be embraced. And the differentiation is, and I wrote this, is to not confuse health with fitness and to always prioritize health and to also embrace the word development. And I think it's a word we don't use. And we could could, um, extend a female athlete's career if we understand that their peak is not in high school and that there's there's a healthy period of 
of um, puberty that will make them more durable and capable in the long run. Um, but again, you know, what's funny about this conversation is when I think to the back to the European conversation we had is, you know, these athletes are getting passed from one coach to the next in, in the U.S. And that makes sense. There's a high school coach, a college coach, a pro coach. And one of the things that I did observe in Greece was that for the lucky few, they did have one coach through that whole process. And if the coach was smart and wise, they actually didn't rush the puberty mm -hmm. process because they knew they weren't going to lose the athlete in two years. They knew that there was a whole life ahead of them. So perhaps that's one strength of that philosophy. Well, I think that's such an important point because what it comes down to is in that situation, the coach has the athlete, in this case, the female, the the young woman's long-term health in mind and just a long-term view in mind and is letting that athlete develop at their own rate rather than, as you said, forcing them to be at a certain level a year from now or two years from now or even four years from now and rushing the process. Totally, totally. And that's hard. It's, it's hard when there's pressure to be recruited to college. Like I understand why we want to peak in high school and then we want to peak in college. Like it's not, I, I understand why. Um, I just, I wish that there was, uh, I wish there was a, a different way to look at the process and, um, you know, the best college coaches seek out potential, not just, you know, athletes who have already, who are peaking, they look at potential and, um, that word is so imbued with, with power, you know, mm -hmm. we've only got a short amount of time left here and I want to go back to the book. And this is probably my favorite line from what I've been able to read so far. I'm about halfway through and you wrote, sometimes it hurts to know that you can do it. It's an intimidating thing to realize because it means that the only person who can really define your growth and happiness is yourself. There is no shortcut to becoming your best self. The responsibility is on you. I love that line and I'd love to dig into it a little bit with you here. Why do you think that so many of us lack that self-confidence and try to push off personal responsibility, whether it's running work or relationships or some other aspect of our life. Yeah. Well, I think it's just easier to find a reason why we can't succeed rather than understand that there's always a way to pivot and keep going. It's always easier to, to find the reasons why we can't. And I draw this distinction in the book between those who are, interested versus those who are committed to a goal or a dream. And there's the, it's the biggest distinction in the world because I think those who are merely interested are going to find those reasons why it just wasn't there. It wasn't possible, whatever it is. And it's very easy to find those reasons. And I think those who are committed just see, you know, they see failure as a part of success, as a part of the process, and they always see uh, opportunities to pivot. There's never, there's always a way to keep going. Um, and that question that I had to ask myself was one that I've had to ask myself a lot, but when I was little, I, oh, I felt sad that I felt different. Like I felt sad that I didn't have a mom. I felt sad that it didn't feel fair that other people had this person that could tell them, 
you know, all the things that I imagined a mom tells kids, which maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I just didn't have it. And it would have been easy to just be sad and just sit there and use it as an excuse as to why I couldn't do X, Y, or Z because I didn't have this thing. But deep inside, I knew that I could do it. It was just going to hurt and going to take time and going to be challenging. And, uh, but it hurts because, because you know, you can like, it's like a sweet, sweet kind of, kind of realization. It's like, it's the sweetest thing when you're like, ah, I know I can do this. I just have to try my best, you know, and then keep trying my best. It's like, man, it's so sweet. I think it's the sweetest thing. Last question before we wrap up here. We haven't talked at all really about the New York Times op doc that came out relatively recently. I'll link to it in the show notes. But one of my biggest takeaway messages from that short film was that we as athletes should approach our mental health the same way as we do our physical health. And I'd love for you to just expound upon what you mean by that exactly. Yeah. So I had this post-Olympic depression that, um, you know, we go into way deeper in the book than the New York Times piece. But basically, the I had just no way of looking at how I felt that made any sense to me. And all growing up, I felt like the way that the narrative was told to me about my mom was that like she had to die and that she was like sick and this these things happen and like almost like it was inevitable. And that just felt awful because it meant that when I was having these difficult feelings, it felt inevitable that I would never heal and that I, you know, like it just was terrible. And then this doctor that I met in Eugene, Dr. Arpea, told me one day that it I was sick and that I had like a scratch on my brain. And that was just the biggest epiphany for me because I suddenly understood how to place my mental illness, my mental situation uh, in a way that made sense to me, which was exactly as I might look at a physical injury. And he helped me understand that my brain was a body part, just like my, my leg is a body part. And by looking at it that way, I not only felt like it was okay to be injured, but that I had a way and that it was possible to heal. And I think that's the number one challenge when you have a mental health, um, injury is that you feel like you're going to be that way forever. And we don't really feel that way about most injuries. Like for the Mm -hmm. most part, we're, there's a process and we're determined and we find the help. And then we also are kind enough to ourselves, hopefully during an injury to know that it's not going to heal overnight. And there were so many things about that metaphor that just flipped the switch for me and completely turned things around. And I was amazed that I was never told this before, especially having had a family history of mental illness with my mom, with her brother, with her mom, um, really strongly. And I was like, man, if, if people could understand this, I think it would be a, a little bit simpler, this process, and a little bit more um, possible to move forward. And what was important to me about this piece and, and just sharing this message is that I think we are aware now that athletes and people face mental health issues and have injuries to their brain in this way. But what we don't know is what do we do about it? And I think this very simple comparison to comparing it to any other physical injury just gives us a clear path forward 
to changing the way we, our culture views mental health and also the way we approach these injuries and deal with them? Well, I, for one, really appreciated that perspective. I think it can help break down some of the stigma that we have around mental health. Like there's no stigma around like plantar fasciitis or exactly. a sprained ankle or, or anything like that. We can talk about those things normally. They're part of being a runner, part of being an athlete. And I think this sort of stuff is part of being a human and we should be able to talk about it as such. Totally, totally. It's, um, it is just, you know, we can, you know, it's, it's funny too about the physical health stuff. Cause even, you know, my dad might see a PT now, like it's much more normalized to even take, to take mm -hmm. care of your body now. And so I just see a world where we progress the conversation enough that we're doing the same kind of prehab for our brain that we might do for our body. And that those terms are common knowledge where there, there isn't really a prehab for your brain or there aren't, you know, it's just, I see a world where it just, becomes a lot, the path becomes a lot more paved, you know, or clear. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Alexi, thank you so much for your bravery, your creativity, and for your positivity. It was a pleasure to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. I'm so grateful and I'm so excited uh, to be here because I, I've long uh, admired you and I'm grateful for you taking the time to read Bravey as well. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this week's episode. As we start 2021, Tracksmith continues their tradition of encouraging no days off. It's their annual call for patience, persistence, and participation in running. Tracksmith is shipping a free no days off poster with every order to encourage that commitment to consistency. And it goes on while supplies last, so get your order in today at tracksmith.com. Additionally, they're offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of 75 bucks or more when you use the code MARIO15 at checkout. That's MARIO15 when you check out at tracksmith.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales last thing if you are digging this podcast i think you'll love my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe every tuesday morning you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that i've been thinking about reading and listening to it's a quick read five ten minutes tops but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week again you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>